1: Hello and welcome to the New Books in Education podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Odinets. My guest today is Jeffrey Benson, and we will be talking about his new book, Improve Every Lesson Plan with SEL, which just came out. We are recording in May of 2021, and SEL is Social Emotional Learning. Jeffrey Benson has been a teacher for over 40 years, also a school director, mentor, author, and leader in education working in school reform, teacher training, curricular development, and conflict resolution. His books include Hanging In, Strategies for Working with the Students Who Challenge Us Most, 10 Steps for Managing Change in Schools, and Teaching the Whole Teen, Everyday Practices that Promote Success and Resilience in School and Life. He's also the author of many articles and is a member of the faculty at the ASCD, the Association of Supervision and Curriculum Development. On a personal note, I'd like to add that I had the pleasure of working for Jeffrey Benson at a little alternative therapeutic high school in Massachusetts, where he was director of education back in the 2000s. I had been a teacher for only a couple of years at that point, and I learned a lot from him and from our excellent colleagues there. So for me, of course, when I read this book, I could hear your voice, Jeffrey, in my head, and now through our podcast, this will be possible for all of our listeners. So welcome, Jeffrey, and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, Chris. It's really a pleasure to reconnect
1: with you. So in this title, uh, Improve Every Lesson Plan with SEL, as the title, as with the titles of your other books, I detect the promise of both big ideas and practical techniques that we can do tomorrow morning when the bell rings. Would you tell us about this book, your thesis and your approach?
2: Sure. Um, well, one of the things that I know that teachers struggle with is always having more and more curriculum and requirements thrust upon them as much as we all want to do the most we can for our students and to teach the whole kid. It's really hard to do everything. And I know that most of the good teachers I know, which is most teachers always in some sense have integrated social, emotional learning into their daily interchanges with kids. And it happens implicitly and randomly periodically. You remind kids to um, acknowledge that someone else has supported them or to praise them for picking up something that fell in the room or for um, reaching out to someone in the class who was struggling. And those that's all the stuff we want kids to learn to do in life. And so the premise of the book is to take what you do implicitly and randomly and then just do it explicitly and intentionally throughout the day. So the book is set up as if you took a lesson plan template as if it was a little accordion and you stretch it as widely as you could. And through the book, I say, where in every spot during a typical lesson are there opportunities to predict how you will support, praise, and model social-emotional skills for kids? So from the moment they walk in the room to the first activity, often a do-now, to accessing prior learning, to some version of direct instruction, to the period of time when kids are experimenting and doing independent and group work to your formal and informal assessments and to the closure of the class or multiple times to support kids in using and developing their SEL skills. So my goal and my hope is that teachers will read this and say, oh, I do that already. And if I just do it a little more, I will be more successful and the kids will be more successful. The other part I wanna add is that we know from the last wonderful 30 years, of brain science and neurobiology, that you can't actually separate emotions from learning. In fact, they are required for us to actually have any long-term memory storage and to build um, an integrated sense of self with the curriculum. So it's not just to be nice that we're doing this, but um, the more kids who can actually engage with their full selves, in the curriculum, the more successful they'll be in learning and being able to transfer the skills in class to the rest of their communities.
1: Well, and the book is uh, very timely um, because we're just coming out of this pandemic, which has been terribly hard and especially for students and especially for the students who have the fewest academic resources at home and the ones whose parents haven't had the luxury to work from home on Zoom and sit next to them when they're supposed to be doing their stuff. and. Um, So the the principal at my daughter's school the other day said, if we go back to the way uh, we were doing things before, we have not learned anything. So where are we today uh, with this kid population that we have after this really difficult year?
2: Well, actually, I have a slightly different take on this than a lot of people. Um, Most of us knew how to do school before the pandemic, and schools are filled with schedules and rituals and expectations, and I think for most people, we're going to slide back in in the fall pretty quickly. But I, I think it's what you know a lot of the kids long for, not just the opportunity to be in the same room with their peers, which is so critically important, but just to be in rhythm through the day and not have to be sort of on their own managing their schedule, managing their attention, managing their motivation. So I actually think within a couple of weeks, school's going to be pretty much like it was. Now, I don't think school as it was was the greatest model to go back to. But um, I'm thinking most kids are going to be fairly soothed by the routines of school. Um, So in some sense, what we can do here, because we've had a little pause, is say, how do we um, deepen the routines? How do we add to the routines we've always had? How do we take the things that we did again sort of implicitly and now and then and say, you know what? Let's really bulk up on this. Um, So to give you an example, there's a skill that I always want students to develop, which is to be um, self-advocates for themselves as learners, to get what they need, to know what they need, and to feel that they have the capacity to use the resources in the classroom to do their best. So I think that's going to be a really important skill for kids going back, to remember that they can be autonomous that they can have voice and agency in the classroom. So if that's my goal, as soon as the kids walk in the room, I'm going to be talking to them about, all right, what do you need now to do on this lesson? Let's stop for 10 seconds, everyone think. Is there something you need to take care of before we start doing this work? Do you need to get up? Do you need to stretch? Do you need to finish a conversation with somebody? Do you have a question you need to ask me? Um, We're heading into, um, let's say, the um, direct instruction part. Okay, before we go into direct instruction, Let's pause for a moment. You're gonna have to be taking notes during this time. You're gonna have to be doing some concentrating for the next 10 minutes. What do you need now? Let's think for a few seconds. Take care of what you need before we go into this. As the class is ending, all right, turn and this is one of my favorite um, routines. um, And it's so useful for so many academic and social emotional skills, which I wanna say again, I've never known how we could separate them anyhow. Before the class ends, We're going to do a turn and talk, turn to your peer. So, Jeffrey, turn to Chris. See if you both agree what the homework is, because if you both don't agree, that's a quote, raise your hand, one of you, and say, Mr. B, come come over. We're not sure what we need for homework here. If a whole bunch of kids aren't sure what the homework is, then that's on me, the teacher. But make sure with your peer that you know what the homework is. And also, I'm going to give you a minute. Talk about how you're going to start doing your homework when you get home so that you can get a little engagement on it. That one minute of having kids turn and talk to each other, support each other, and advocate for what they need. If if you ask me what's one thing to do coming back that you're not doing, is to do that. That minute you take at the end of class of kids doing a turn and talk with your peer, do you know what the homework is? Do you agree on it? Do you know how to get started? Do you need any support or resources to do your homework? That's going to save so much reteaching. So many kids who didn't get the homework done or started because they were confused about what they had to do. What I don't want us to do, again, coming back, is teach to the bell and we're in mid-sentence, writing on the board and the bell rings and while the kids are packing up their papers and all the noise in the hallway, we're trying to repeat to them what the homework is or the papers they have to hand in. So that's my number one recommendation. Have a one minute closing of class ritual. You will gain so much from it and so will the kids.
1: What I love about that is that it shows uh, the way this accordion of stretching out time that you have um, uh, men- mentioned earlier, because as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't have time to stop and talk about the goals. And I don't have time to have to the- engage the kids as they come in. And I don't have time to spark students' interest and motivation by going back to what we did last time. But that's because I'm thinking from my point of view, where I imagine everything's going to go exactly as I planned it and I'll get to all the topics. But for the kids, they have a hundred other things going on, things that happened outside in the hallway, things that happened that morning in, uh, in their homes. And um, tell, 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 tell a bit more about like all the little places throughout this lesson plan where you leave room for students to sort out their and prepare themselves um, emotionally so that they can learn And exactly as you say, so we avoid reteaching or so that we're not only talking to the top one third and leaving the others behind.
2: Right. It's really important. I'll give you um, one of my favorite examples Um, because there are so many. That's part of um, I'm glad you brought up, Chris, the notion I can't do every single thing in the book. I have never thought anyone could. Although that would be very lovely. But to pick one or two and start digging into them. So here's another one in addition to that last minute at the end of class. This is such a common question teachers ask, and I did too. I have done. Okay, who can tell me what we talked about yesterday? It's a really common way of kind of hopefully sparking previous learning, getting the kids' neurological networks, you know, sparked to what we did yesterday. But we know that the same four or five kids are going to raise their hand every time. In fact, a lot of kids have their hand up before I would even finish the sentence because they're quick in terms of their um, auditory verbal skills. They're confident that they can think of an answer in the moment. And I'm halfway through the question of who can tell me what we, and I know kids have their hands up already. So those five kids raise their hand, I'll call on one of them, and the rest of the kids, nothing's going on in their brains that I want to have happen. Maybe a few of them are listening to their peer talk, but they're mostly waiting until I signal that it's not just those five kids who are currently the, um, the source of my lesson plan. So I have a completely, like, very different um, question to ask. And I love this question. You can do this anytime you want. It takes a minute or two. But what it does is it so brings all the class with us right into the lesson. I just say, everyone quiet for 10 seconds. Think of one memory from class over the last few days or yesterday. Anything that comes to mind counts. the only right answer is what you're thinking. Any shard of anything that happened, and I'm not gonna let one kid answer for everyone. Each person's gonna get a chance to do one little memory. So, one, so I might call on a few kids. One kid might say, Mr. B, I remember when Chris gave that really strange answer. I'm like, oh, me too. And in that moment, the whole class is Memories are now sparked to that moment when Chris gave that answer. And from that, there's a whole neurological network of memories that come. Another kid might say, hey, Mr. B, I remember when the chalk broke when you were writing the equation on the board. Because kids love to point out when we do wrong. But you know what? I don't mind. Because in that moment, everyone's back in the room in the lesson and starting to build their memory of that again. Another kid might say, I remember when, you know, um, Susie asked that really weird question. I'm like, oh, wow, that's a great question. And there we are again with that question where their minds going. And even if a kid said, hey, I remember when the pigeon landed on the windowsill. Me too. You know what I love about the kid who says that? It's usually the kid who wouldn't ever say anything in this conversation. And now not only have they contributed and they may think they're being kind of funny, but actually we all remember when the pigeon landed on the windowsill. And now we're all as a group together again. So five kids answering the question. And one of them, you know, usually getting to talk doesn't bring in 20 other kids, but everyone having the chance to think for 10 seconds and listening to a few peers access their prior learning brings us all together as one. It's again, one minute, but you get so much bang from that book. And besides which I want to add something else. It's fun as a teacher. One of the things we don't do when we ask so many guess what the teacher's thinking questions, by the way, 90% of the questions asked in schools are guess what the teacher's thinking questions. We already know what we want to hear. Those five kids will raise their hand and tell us, it's boring as a teacher. But hearing what all of those, you know, idiosyncratic, diverse minds in the class were thinking about something, I've laughed so hard listening to kids answer that question. Um, And it makes us a community of learners. Our brains are alive and we are ready to dive in to the extension of that lesson for today
1: um how many how many uh volunteers would you take would you let them go for a minute would you let them go until every because what if you have 20 hands in the air
2: if i had 20 hands in the air for that that would be fabulous wouldn't it because usually you have five hands in the air for that question <laughs> i would just say i love it 20 hands in the air um, i'm going to just randomly pick five of you because we don't have enough time for more or you know what today let's see if we can do 10 or Raise two hands up if you feel like you've got something super you want to say and you really get to talk today. Um, Oh, that would be a thrill. You know, I might even say, in that case, I might even do a turn and talk. And I might say, turn to your neighbor. 15 seconds each, what's your memory? Or I might put, you know, three kids together. 15 seconds each, what's your memory? Because there's multiple things going on here. Um, One of the most important things about learning is believing that what you're thinking matters. And this is why I always wanna break the game of guess what the teacher's thinking. Because in that moment, what I'm thinking as a student isn't really important unless I can guess what the teacher's thinking. Being able to tell another person what you're thinking, having them react to you, not only reinforces your memory, but it builds that social-emotional skills of thinking and listening, the, the skills of understanding different perspectives, of appreciating different perspectives, and sparking all of those memories of the lesson and getting you ready for today's lesson. Think of how much happens in those 45 seconds. Yeah, so if a whole bunch of the kids are raising their hands, time for a quick turn and talk. Two groups of three. Turn to the person next to you. Turn to the person behind you. 15 seconds each. What was your memory? And then I might say, I want just one or two people to tell me what their partner said that you thought was so cool because it's a whole other social emotional skill and cognitive skill, not to just repeat what you said, but to summarize, appreciate, and make public what your partner said. Um, And almost always when I do turn and talks, that's one of my favorite options. Don't tell me what you said. You're going to tell me what your partner said. If you think about the social emotional skills involved in that, we're doing yeoman or yo person work in those, those seconds of that happening.
1: That's wonderful. Okay. So this book is organized into seven chapters, all which follow a uh, um, a lesson plan from goal planning to greeting the students and engaging them to sparking their uh, interest in uh, in the lesson, and then working with the specific objectives. And I've I noticed the emphasis on knowing what you're doing before you start talking. So, you know, there's a bigger goal than like, oh, today we're going to talk about the Treaty of Versailles and the Great Depression or whatever. There's got to be a bigger reason. How do you figure out what your, your, what your goals are and how do you get the kids to be invested in the goals for something that happened? I'm a social studies teacher. So for something right. that happened 100 or 500 or 5,000 years ago. Right,
2: because why should they care? Um, is a really good question. Uh, A lot of what happens in schools is an incredible exercise in delayed gratification. You know, it's 12 years of spending a lot of time with curriculum that you don't really connect to, that you're doing because it's mandatory, because you don't want to fail, you don't want to get in trouble, you don't want to, you know, have your parents get on your case. And so you do the work and then you forget about it. Um, and this goes back to the notion that we don't actually create durable memories without actually having an emotional connection to something. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so part of this is, and there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff in the book about this. First, what is it? What is in it for the kids? So sometimes I'll say to students, you know what's cool about this lesson? is that making sense of this lesson is going to help you make sense of your neighbors right now. And we're going to do this, but then we're going to talk about how it fits your neighbors. So as we're talking through this, I want to think you to think about someone in your neighborhood who you don't like, and we're going to make sense of it that way. Or it might be, you know, this lesson is really going to help you focus on linear thinking. And I know a lot of you have been working on that. If this, then that. So The reason to learn this stuff, yes, the Treaty of Versailles, I assure you, no one is going to go down the street and ask you about the Treaty of Versailles when you're 20 years old, but they are going to ask you to make sense of stuff. So this is like grist for the mill. If we can make sense of the Treaty of Versailles, we're going to make sense of the other things in our lives. So this lesson is really about building your capacity to think really hard about something. By the way, that's the first part. The second part is, why am I, as the teacher, excited? about this. So I have to add that to it as well. And why I love this thing about the Treaty of Versailles is because when I figured out the Treaty of Versailles, I have to tell you, it actually helped me figure out how to get along with my parents. And so when I'm teaching this lesson, I'm going to talk to you a little about how it helped me get along with my parents, because it might help you. But there's something in it that I'm fascinated by. And I may ask you a week after we do this, has this helped you get along with your parents? So there's a part of how will they find some meaning in this lesson for themselves besides just compa- you know passively being compliant? And actually, why am I excited for them to learn this? What's in it for me? I wanted my teachers. I think I mentioned in this book when teachers would say to me, well, the reason I'm teaching you this is that you need to know it for the test. That never motivated me. You know, I was going to do fine on the test probably anyhow. Or if the teacher said, well, you're going to need to know this because your teacher next year is going to want you to be able to do this. I wanted my teacher to say, because I want you to be able to do this. Don't keep pushing it off on the teacher next year. Like when I was in third grade, that didn't work for me. When my teacher said, you know, next year's teacher will want you to do this. I realized early on, oh, then the next year's teacher is going to say it's the next year's teacher. Will anyone stop and say, here's why I want you to learn this? I did that a lot when I was a teacher. And, you know, my my students, I wasn't the perfect teacher for everyone. Um, but the fact that I was passionate about teaching the Pythagorean theorem or semicolons, it, it sparked their emotions because we um, do know that there are mirror neurons. When I'm excited by something, it's really hard to resist somebody who's excited. They might've thought I was a weird teacher, but that's okay because it was memorable to them because I was weird and I was excited about semicolons.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: That makes that makes a lot of sense. I've certainly had that experience where you know, my, lunch, my room is full at lunchtime, and I'm over at my desk doing something just for myself, like playing chess online or looking at some uh, Chinese characters that I'm practicing. And kids will say like, hey, what are you doing? And then a, some, a, a student who wouldn't have, I don't think would have another motivation says like, well, this adult whom, uh, you know, at, at least I respect and possibly like uh, is doing it. Maybe I'm interested too. And, um, um, but uh, there is an emphasis in your book on community. Learning, learning not just for myself, but for my people, my family, my neighbors. Uh, tell, tell, tell me about how how that emphasis worked its way into the lesson, because we often don't think that way uh, in in schools or just in our society. We're awfully individualistic, I think, and you you speak uh, in a very different way about it.
2: Yeah, and actually, that gives me a chance to. Um, and I can get very emotional about this. Uh, Give another shout out to the person who the book's dedicated to, uh, my mentor, Jim Grant, who died a couple of years ago. And Jim did a lot of, and he was the one who really um, focused me on this. I kind of knew it implicitly. Um, he, he had done a lot of work in uh, Native American schools through the years and it had a big influence on him as a person. And he grew up in uh, Peterborough, New Hampshire. He was like, you know, a, a stiff back, lovely, but kind of classic, you know, New England guy. And he spent a lot of time around the country working in uh, indigenous schools. And he said to me at one point, and I'm going to paraphrase, and I will probably um, be a little too reductionist because there are multiple um, cultures within the indigenous people in the United States. It's not one culture. But he said to me, you know, if I say to the students in the class, this is really important because you're need, going to need this on the SAT, let's say. Like, you know, like not much, you don't get much traction from that. Are you going to need it? Because when you go to college, well, very few of them were going to go to college. Um, He said, at one point I said, because this is going to help your tribe be more successful. And he said they looked up and he had his aha moment that so much of the culture of schools is this individual sort of Olympics for who gets the highest grades and who can get them and what it means to pass or what it means to fail. And so rarely, I mean, rarely is the goal of education so that the kids in the class be able to support their communities and their family better. And I don't just, I mean, economically, that they're going to get jobs, but they're going to be contributing members to their community. And I'm including the community of the classroom. It's so much about individuals getting ahead. Um, And so, Throughout the book, there's a lot of times of talking about the social-emotional skill of contributing to the greater good, of being a contributing member to your community or your communities. I think it's a tremendous motivator and one we so rarely talk about. Um, One of the points in the book, um, and this is a question that I think, and the book is geared for people literally teaching K through 12 and I give different scripts throughout whether you're like a K through three teacher or a four to seven teacher or an eight to 12 teacher there are usually three scripts in each part Um, and this one sounds similar K through 12 and it's one of the questions for homework or for the next day when you're doing a do now or accessing prior learning which is what if everyone in your community learned what we did yesterday how would your community be a better place? And at different age levels, of course you scaffold it differently, but it's a really important question to ask and it roots your lesson in the lives of the kids. And this is particularly true, and there's a lot in the book about this, about the diversity of kids in schools and how schools have been built on the dominant white European culture, individualizing, getting ahead, And the stories and the strengths of African-Americans, of recent immigrants, of immigrants from 100 years ago still, and how they have coped and how they have managed doesn't show up in the curriculum a lot. Um, But this question asks kids to make the connection between what they're learning in school and their family life and their community and their hopes. And it's one of my favorite questions. And again, it's not a guess what the teacher's thinking question. Um, and by the way, and Chris knows I had an article called hundred repetitions. Sometimes you really a hundred times. My kids had to hear me say, I am not asking you to guess what Mr. Benson's thinking. I know what I'm thinking. I am so fascinated in what you're thinking. You have beautiful, interesting, individualized minds. So when I'm asking you this question, it's, I really do want to know what you're thinking. And even if you're not sure of a whole answer, you're welcome to say, well, I have this half of an idea or this little piece of an idea. Sometimes if the class is quiet, I might say, do a turn and talk. And oftentimes the class bursts into conversation because kids weren't ready yet to throw out a hypothesis to the whole group, but turning to a peer and talking gave their chance, gave their minds a chance to work. And sometimes then I could say, could somebody tell me what their peer said? And so sometimes you can say, yeah, you know, Joe said this thing, I thought it was amazing. Um, so I forgot where we started in this. Oh, this is about community. I think it's really important to keep bringing that back. And yeah, we don't do it enough. We don't do it hardly at all.
1: I, I think that's extremely interesting and um, insightful. Uh, I, I think of it as uh, what I have to offer these kids can only make it this far, but I'm whatever I have, whatever skills I can offer are not going to, go beyond my own little world, and they can take it into whole different worlds that I don't even know about.
2: Oh, yeah, uh, I've
1: heard
2: heard so many stories from kids, um, because sometimes it's their homework assignment. You know, talk to your folks about what we're learning, but I want to know if they ever learned it, if they've ever used that information, what, you know, had they ever heard of this before? And kids will come back and tell me, oh, my mom told me this story about when she learned it, or my father told me this thing, or my uncle told me this thing, or no one heard about this, and they were kind of really interested in it. Um, And I wanna say again, social, or for the first time in this podcast, social emotional skills are not just being polite, not just saying please and thank you, which I think are really important skills, but it's about understanding your own goals and how learning matters to you and connecting kids to their families and their communities is one way, but also having them come in excited to tell me and to tell the class about this, I wanna say cements the learning we're trying to do in such a different, more deeply neurologically held way than if it's just kind of rote memorization. Um, Hearing your dad talk about his struggle to learn something or hearing your mom talk about a history that her family had, you're not gonna forget that. Sometimes, you know, when I talk to people about my work in schools and all the things I do um, to build up kids' capacity to learn, you know, i say, you know, I am a reasonably nice guy. I know that. But sometimes I think all the stuff I do is so I can kick their asses cognitively. I want every kid's brain in that classroom to be at their cutting edge of learning. And I can't do that if I don't make effort to connect them to me, to the curriculum, to each other. And otherwise, I'm going to lose a lot of them. Um, I'm not happy that we're happy in schools with kind of the bell-shaped curve of grades, that a lot of kids get B minuses and C pluses. I don't blame any teacher for that. But I think it's because we accept the fact that most kids don't feel connected. And um, that's just not good enough. So the little time, and I don't think it's a lot of time, that I spend doing these pieces, and each day it's different spots, and some days I'll do the same routines for a week or two. I know I'm pulling kids in. I know that they are emotionally, neurologically, more ready to learn than if I did not do this, and that their memories of the experiences in class are going to be held with them much longer. And that matters to me a lot. <laughs> I,
1: I, I noticed that you explicitly uh, say something about how grades are not really useful. And you're doing this in the formative assessment chapter. Uh, and it it reminded me when I was in graduate school and I had a professor and he said, you know, like you're a graduate student. I don't know if I should give you, you know, an A minus, a B plus, a K or a W because who cares? You wrote what you wrote and there's, you know, and and there's good parts in it and there's weaker parts in it. Um, how does that translate into a high school classroom? Because I, you know, I, um, I'm, 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 practitioner of this bell curve and one of the the great problems with the zoom distance learning stuff is that that bell curve has gone upside down with some kids excelling and some kids really really dropping off because I'm a tiny on the screen I'm one inch tall and they can open another tab and play a video game and ignore me you know it used to be I could stand over you and say Jeffrey we're on page 115 please draw this map of Japan right Right? Uh, I can't do that in this year hopefully next year will be different but how do you feel about grades
2: Oh, I, I mean, basically, I think they're awful. Um, and probably you and a lot of your listeners know about the notion of competency-based reporting. Um, <clears throat> so let me first say what it, what's the problem with grades. So Chris might have a rubric in his class that it's 75% of your grade is based on your test scores and 10% is based on your class participation Five percent on your homework, ten percent on your behavior, or something like that. And he adds it up and puts it in the blender at the end of the year, and you get a B plus. I don't know what that means. I'm the teacher next year. I'm the parent. I don't know what his rubric was. And I think it's really important to say to kids, here's the rubric. You know, of how you're going to get, how I'm going to grade you. But um, there's no scientific background to say that that's a reasonable way. Why should it be 15% homework? Why not 10% homework? Why not 80% homework? Why not 50% grades? There's no science behind that at all. It's just because we've been forced to do this. So competency-based grading is really saying, at this point, this is what Chris can do. Chris can write a complete three-paragraph essay. He can use topic sentences most of the time or he can use topic sentences with some reminders um he is not yet using commas consistently in um a series i don't need to grade that that's information a grade is sort of taking all the information and with a letter or a number that's supposed to symbolize so much um if you say, and then so if we could at least say as a school This is our rubric. We're going to do 75% test scores. We're going to do 10% homework. At least, yeah, there's no science behind that, but at least it would be something you could communicate. But I would prefer that we actually said, and this is what your kid or you does well, is still working on and needs a lot of support to learn. That's what matters.
1: Kids really like to get a good, they, they love to have that letter A. And if I can say, you know, Jeffrey, this was a really interesting paragraph. I love what you wrote. It should be an A plus, but I notice you're not capitalizing proper nouns or putting a space after the period. So it has to be a B plus. I'm sorry, Jeffrey. I hope next time you remember this thing we've talked about. Doesn't, isn't that a nice stick and carrot? So,
2: well, I'm going to ask sort of the obvious question. Then how come all kids aren't getting A's after a
1: couple of years of having that stick and carrot. Isn't it a hundred repetitions? (laughs) A hundred B pluses.
2: (laughs) No, because I think actually what happens more is we develop in kids instead of a growth mindset, a fixed mindset. Yeah. You know? And also here's the other part. And this is okay, I want to say yes, Chris, I think for a handful of kids, absolutely, absolutely, grades are a stick and a carrot. But schools sadly, aren't a meritocracy. They're not, they're le- the playing field's not level. Um, what we actually are buying into is a system that rewards kids for their family background, um, And grades don't reflect kids' intelligence, how hard they work, um, what they've had to overcome. And even if they have the resources, the time, to go and redo something again. Or if they see the fact that getting grades in school will lead to something greater in their lives. Um, So I think grades work for some kids. I just feel like they don't work for most kids. And I'll do the 100 repetitions the other way, which is I think at this point, kids are probably going to need 100 repetitions to not have grades to realize that what's really valuable is what they know and what they don't know and that they have agency in moving forward on that. Um, but we're so far from that. So I'm sorry, yeah, for those of <laughs> you who are listening, I hate them. <clears throat> I, I think we, you know, I'll give you another version of that. I, I raised, you know, two kids at home um, who are pretty competent people in the world. You know, they're adults now. I never gave them a test at home. I never gave them a grade. We are always working towards competency. They always got feedback. They always knew when I was happy with what they were doing or not happy with what they were doing. They developed a sense of what they wanted to be incompetent in, in relationship with me. Now, you can't have, you know, a relationship with every kid in your class that's like a parent to a kid because there's too many kids in the class. But I just want to say that most of us have experienced really deep learning into which you are never tested and never graded.
1: Well, that's a really good point. And you, you include some tools for doing this efficiently because I think- the The thing to say uh, is that, like, I have I have four kids and I have 165 students. So hey, but you have some tools here. For example, you can have everyone hold up four fingers or one to four fingers. And what are so? Explain that tool and maybe tell us some other ones because they're they're really elegant in their simplicity yep. and efficacy.
2: Yeah, the simplicity of this one is one of my favorites, <clears throat> and it was a little chart. I learned this from someone. You know, after so many years of teaching and supervising wonderful teachers like Chris and consulting to schools. You know, I, have um, learned, I was going to say stole <laughs> <laughs> from so many great mm-hmm. teachers. I, I don't remember who I got this from. Um, but I had it up in my room and I used it a lot. And it was a simple one, two, three, four rubric. And one was, I'm really lost. I, I'm not getting this. The number one. Number two was, I'm okay, but I need more help. Number three was, I'm good at this. And number four was, I could teach this, I know it so well, in some version. And the language was more succinct. And I would ask kids to write on their homework, to write on almost anything they turned in, just the number, or to raise their hands, you know, fingers up. So as I wanted to know, and this is great, and going back to SEL stuff, understanding one's strengths and weaknesses and working from your strengths and weaknesses is a really important SEL skill. And being, asked, being able to ask for support is a really important SEL skill. <clears throat> so when a kid writes on his or her paper, or their paper, a two or a one, they're letting me know that they want more support. In order for them to feel safe to do that, I've got to be doing all this other stuff all the time so that my classroom and their relationship with me is a safe one to be vulnerable. Because that's the downside of grades. You know, they're in a... <clears throat> How would you like as a worker to have your supervisor standing over you the entire work day, commenting publicly on everything you do and everything that you say and do is um, calculated into an an assessment of you. And then that assessment is also shared with your family. It's not a safe place. So kids hide a lot in school um, because they don't want to be put on the spot and shamed because it's such a public um, experience. So being in relationship with your teacher, knowing that your teacher is fascinated by what you think, knowing that you will be supported for all your idiosyncratic ideas, knowing that if you say, I don't know something, is seen as a wonderful thing. You can do that in your classrooms now. You can do it even with grades. That stuff is is doable. Um, Really important to uh, Uh, make safe space.
1: I, I very much agree with that. And I know for a fact that I perform better on those days where I know I'm going to be observed or, you know, even if there are some visitors walking through our school, like I'm going to do some extra backflips and make my slideshow even better. And good thing that doesn't happen too often because that would be exhausting. On the other hand, all of the stuff you teach in this book doesn't require fancy slideshows and, uh, Um, You know, games. It's just taking a couple minutes here and there to check in with students and encourage them and ask them what they're thinking. What's beautiful about these techniques is they're not hard.
2: No, in fact, I want to jump in. Thank you, Chris, because I've been wanting to say this, that in the beginning of the book, there's a list. I try to make social emotional learning into really simple language because I found it has become so like, you know, uh, I've seen in, in some Books and write-ups, you know, um, teaching kids to delay gratification. I don't know how you teach that. I do know how you can support kids in using words to describe their feelings. I do know how you can support kids in advocating for what they need to learn. Um, so I broke, I took all the social-emotional stuff. I did a whole bunch of research and put it into pretty simple language. And the book is basically pointing out two or three of those goals that you and/or the class or individual kids want to do. And at the beginning of an activity saying, okay, let's remember what we're going to work on in this activity is um, using your words to um, communicate your feelings. And then when kids do so, I say, hey, that was a great use of our skill of using your words to communicate your feelings. And it's really just prompting, modeling and praising. I mean, it's literally that um, fundamental. Um, And that goes back to what we started at the beginning. We're doing that implicitly and randomly all through the day. So just think if one of the things you want your kids to do is to use more of the vocabulary words about their feelings in their normal class conversation. It's really simple. Clay class, as we're going to this activity, let's all listen to the words we we each other use that help describe feelings and thinking. As kids do so, I say, hey, there was one. Well done. Did anyone else hear that? At the end of the um, lesson, I'm going to think through for a second the different words I heard people use. Everyone, quiet for 10 seconds. Can you remember anything, the word anyone used from a vocabulary list in the le- in this lesson? Brains are sparking, brains are sparking. It takes me a few seconds get their brains going. Yeah, it's pretty fundamental stuff. Everyone's doing it already in some ways. Just do it intentionally. Um, in the end of the book there's just a very brief sort of lesson plan format that just says if you really wanted to do today supporting kids and using words to express their feelings where in your lesson plan can you give yourself a little reminder that's what i'm going to use it as a prompt. that's what i'm going to remember to praise it. that's what i'm going to do it as part of the summary you do that for a week you do that for two weeks that becomes part of the culture of your class and it also to me really importantly begins to build the character of the kids in the class. This is what they realize it means to be a whole human being. It's really important. It's
1: very I want to say one more thing we
2: haven't gotten to yeah. yet.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, most people skip introductions and epilogues. I put a lot of time into the introduction and the epilogue to this book, and I really think it helps frame the book really well. So I hope that you uh, readers also spend time in the introduction and the
1: epilogue. Well, the very end of the epilogue is that you say that you are Every, every tiny bit of uh, social emotional learning we can integrate into our planning will begin to heal the wounds of passivity and racism and inequity um, and will help students build up their better world, which I think is quite quite beautiful. Um, and you also mentioned somewhere in the middle that you had this mentor who would say, okay, Jeffrey, go save democracy. So I I really appreciate this bigger vision for those detailed things we're doing. We have about a little more than five minutes left. What what, what do you want to say about that, Jeff?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a good, uh, you know, all of us as teachers, we, we operate on many levels. Um, when I was teaching, and I was lucky, I had a long classroom career. I actually taught K through twelve, I taught K through graduate school. And I actually love teaching stuff, you know? I, I wasn't kidding. I have a great semicolon lesson. If you'd like that semicolon <laughs> lesson, go my website is Jeffreybenson.org. I will send it to you. Many people have used it. It works with kids probably from third grade up. As soon as you know what a whole sentence is, you can do the semicolon lesson. It's a, it's like almost like a fun party game for adults. Um, I really want to teach that stuff. So there's that, we, we enter the classroom with a lesson plan that is almost always sort of rooted in stuff, skills and content. But we've always also wanted to teach whole kids. We know that. We don't want to teach kids as robots. We didn't like when we were in school and we were treated like sort of robots, um, that the teachers didn't know us, that we were just, you know, chit marks in their book. that We had ideas, we had feelings, and we wanted those to be known. So we we know that about ourselves as well. But there's this next level up. Um, the work we do in schools. And I want to say specifically public schools, but a lot of private schools. But I want to speak particularly to public school teachers here is we are the institution more than any other institution in our communities that sustains and expands democracy for the next generation. Um, And we do this implicitly but we know what we're doing is we're taking all of the beautiful diversity from the neighborhood that surrounds our schools. And we say, hey, we as a group, as this class, as this grade, as this school, we're gonna learn together. We are going to be interdependent. We're gonna hang in together. And the experience of kids sitting with each other, listening to each other, sharing their thoughts, comparing their thoughts, appreciating each other's thoughts, being witness to each other's feelings, being witness to each other's efforts, to each other's failures, to each other's successes, um, is what really builds the capacity for democracy, for lots of different people to be together and see a common purpose together. And in the end, I think we always knew we were doing that. So we're teaching semicolons, we're teaching kids to be integrated whole kids, and we're teaching people to be in community. Um, I think that's you know the highest we can do I don't think teachers get appreciated for that we know that so deeply that's our charge yeah so the book I wanted to take that implicit thing we do and say no we're that good we are that important we are that significant to what we consider the community that we live in
1: I think that is a perfect place to end our talk are there any other things we have forgotten to to mention
2: um oh probably. <laughs> but I think we're good, you know. I think we've done fine, Chris.
1: Well, I really appreciate this book and I it's such a pleasure to hear your voice and to talk with you again. And I look forward yeah. to sharing sharing this recording not only with the the new books network community, but sending it around to my my staff members here at at the school where I work and uh Um, my friends and family. So thank you again. Let me
2: just say one more thing. Uh, Yes, please. I want to go back to my website, jeffreybenson.org, is where to email me. I am in correspondence with educators all over the country. Um, If you have questions, if you want to check in with me about something, please go. come. We'll, We'll be in dialogue. We'll both feel great about it.
1: Thank you very much. Okay.
2: Thank you, Chris.